Uh, If you have your Bibles, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. Chapter 3. And I'm going to read our passage of Scripture for us this morning out of Philippians chapter 3. Really, we're going to be looking at two verses, verses 10 and 11, but I want to read from 8 through 11 uh, for context um, and uh, to get our minds in the flow of of what Paul is writing here. Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Pray with me this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this day, for the sunshine. We thank you, Lord, for those that are gathered here today, for those that will be watching um, online at home. Uh, Father, we we thank you for the privilege of getting to come together as your children to worship, to praise you, Father, to hear from you in your word. Uh, what, What a privilege. Help us not to take that for granted. Bless us this day, Lord. Teach us through your word. Remind us who you are. Lord, encourage us. Lift us up. Because your truth, Lord, is, is all we have. And we thank you for it. And Father, we continue to pray for uh, Brandon and his family and any others that are isolating, any others that may be sick. Father, we pray for their swift recovery. Uh, we ask, Lord, for your will to be done in our lives. Because that is what is good and perfect and right. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, in our country, we are pretty obsessed with fame, as you all know. Uh, It's not a new phenomenon. This has been going on, and I think, in fact, building for for a long time uh, in in our minds, in our country, and a lot of people are really obsessed with fame. I think, you know, men, young and old, have... uh, studied and memorized uh, all the stats of their favorite sports figures and teams, and, and they know everything that's going on in their lives. Um, we've all seen the old uh, video footage of screaming teenage girls at a Beatles concert or something like that. For my kids, that was a music group a long time ago, back in the 60s, so you don't, you don't know those kinds of things. But um, Anyway, really popular. You've seen those, that footage, the screaming, and they're just going crazy for, for these bands. Um, and then we have movie stars and political figures, and now we have even social media influencers. Okay, these people that I don't even know what it really is, but they're apparently really popular for some reason, and people follow them and do what they do. Um, so there's we're obsessed with this, and people want to become these things. They want to be influencers and have their 15 minutes of fame. Um, we spend a lot of time getting to know these people, and some people dedicate their lives to knowing everything about them. Uh, though they may never have met them and they never will meet them. They know everything about them and consider themselves to be their biggest fan. Uh, So 
They, they follow their professional and even their private lives and are often emotionally tied to what happens with those that they've come to follow. Emotionally tied to them. Some of them are even seen, these famous people, are even seen as kings. Uh, and when they die, people flock to their funerals. I want to look at a few of those. The king of country, Hank Williams, on January 4th, 1953, 25,000 people flocked to the city auditorium in Montgomery, Alabama to attend his funeral. Only 2,750 people could fit in the auditorium, so the rest of the thousands of people had to gather in the streets and in the parks and listen on a PA system. That was the king of country. The king of rock and roll, of course, Elvis Presley. On August 18, 1977, 30,000 people came to view the casket at his funeral, and it's estimated that an additional 80,000 people lined the streets uh, to watch the funeral procession and held signs in honor of the king. A few weeks later, someone even tried to steal his body, so they moved it to a different location. Um, and let's clear this up once and for all. Elvis is dead. Okay, for any of you that think he might not be, he is dead, okay? Uh, the king of pop, Michael Jackson. On July 7th, 2009, in addition to the almost 20,000 people that attended the public memorial service at the Staples Center in Los Angeles, 31.1 million viewers watched his funeral service on TV in the U.S. alone. But more shocking than that number of followers is the fact that it's estimated there were 2.5 billion people watching it around the world. Billion. After Michael Jackson died, journalist Bruce Britt wrote an article titled, Michael Jackson, a pop messiah, about how Michael Jackson influenced his own life. In a portion of that article, he said this, In death as in life, Michael's mystique just seems to grow. Nowadays, I'm struck by the notion that he was a sort of pop messiah, a notion underscored by the eerie biblical allegories of Michael's life. Born the impoverished son of a man named Joseph, Michael was a musical wonder worker who sacrificed his youth to inspire others. His career leveled off in the mid-70s only to stage the most successful resurrection in entertainment history. Many fans will argue that Michael was unjustly persecuted, i.e. crucified, later in his career. Many people would claim to know these kings. They know a lot of what they said or sang about. They know about their accomplishments. They know about the effect they had on the world. They still pull out those old albums and play their favorite tunes to bring back memories of the good old days. But there's a fourth king who died. This fourth, fourth king, king is the king of kings, Jesus Christ. On the day of preparation over 2,000 years ago, just before the Sabbath was to begin, four people gathered to attend the burial of the King of Kings. Two men, who up until that point had been secret disciples of Jesus, and two women. One of the men was a rich man, at the, and the scriptures tell us his name was Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph asked Pilate for the body of Christ so that he could bury him. Pilate agreed, and another man, Nicodemus, helped Joseph take the body to Joseph's own newly carved out tomb. Then there was Mary Magdalene and another woman referred to as Mary, the mother of Joseph. These two women watched in order to see where Jesus was buried. That's it. An astounding four people viewed 
the burial of the most influential person ever to walk the face of the earth. Even many non-Christians would agree that there has never been anyone who has changed the world like Jesus Christ. Yet, where were the streets lined with mourners? Where were the eulogies? If someone who knew nothing of these four kings saw the amount of people who attended their funerals, what conclusion could they come to? This king of kings guy is clearly not well-known, not even well-liked. Yet, which of these kings is eternally existent? Which of these kings lived a sinless life? Which of these kings died for his followers to pay for their crimes? And which of these kings rose again on the third day because even death could not hold him? It's not Elvis. And which of these kings is God himself? It's Jesus, the king of kings. There's only one who fits these descriptions. Only one who is truly worth knowing. Only one for which losing every last thing of value, including one's own life, would be considered gain. That king is Jesus Christ, king of kings and lord of lords, and to know him is the focus, the aim, the calling of everyone who has been brought into his kingdom by the grace and mercy of God. So the title for the sermon today is Knowing Christ. The last time I preached in Philippians, we were in this portion of Paul's letter to the church where he's laid out a long list of his human achievements. Uh, all things that that people would hear of him and agree that he was a righteous man by these standards. But the point of his his ongoing uh, uh, list of things um, about his own self-righteousness was not so that the church would hear it and be proud of him or want to follow him in those things. The point was to hold them in front of their eyes knowing they would all value those things. They all understood and valued those things and and would think he was a righteous person. That's not the point. He didn't want them to aspire to those things. He held them up so that he could make a strong point regarding what they actually were. He took those things and he said they were rubbish. They're dung. The idea is that they're useless. They're unwanted, putrid things, only good for removing completely from a person's life. He used to to count them in the, in the gain column of his life, and now he knew that they were only to be placed in the loss column. Those things were a hindrance to what was true gain, being found in Christ, he said, not with a self-righteousness to boast about, but with the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is the righteousness of another. That is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that was my focus in this passage last time the righteousness of Christ imputed to those who are born again. But there is more in this passage that we need to notice. So there's a little crossover between last time and this time. But, but Paul mentioned it in the beginning in verse 8. I'm going to kind of look at verse 8, but really the focus is going to be 10 and 11. But 8 is tied to this, okay? Um, he began this in verse 8 and is bringing it up again in our passage uh, for today in verse 10. So there's a little overlap between the last message and this one. And first, I want you to notice Paul's comments about knowing Christ in the first part of verse 8. So if you look at, at Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, okay, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
Okay, he uses this statement to get into all that he says about the righteousness of Christ, and, and indeed knowing about the need we have for the righteousness of Christ is absolutely critical to knowing Christ. You cannot truly know Christ in the sense that we're talking about uh, without knowing you need his righteousness. So to know Christ then is something Paul comes back to just two verses later in verse 10, and look at what he says in verses 10 and 11. We'll do both. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And Paul uses two different forms of the Greek word for knowledge in verses 8 and 10. In verse 8, the word knowing is a form of the noun Paul used, gnosis, okay, knowledge. In the context of verse 8, Paul has received knowledge in the gospel. Okay, he possesses this knowledge by faith. This knowledge is what surpasses all other things he thought were valuable. And this knowledge is the gospel. It means he has been saved. For example, Paul uses this word the same way when writing to the Corinthian church about the gospel that he proclaims in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Also, we see Zechariah prophesying and using this word to describe his son John the Baptist's ministry. In Luke 1, 76 and 77, Zechariah, talking about John, says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to, to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This is that knowledge John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord. His mission was to give knowledge, gnosis, of salvation to God's people. So when Paul uses this word in verse 8, he's talking about knowing Christ in the sense of being saved. Okay? And, and he said that that knowledge, salvation, is worth everything, and everything else is worth nothing. He said, compared to all that that he held as valuable in his human terms, that whole list of things he had, he said knowing Christ was of surpassing worth. People think there are a lot of things more important than knowing Christ, but there is nothing. This is not just knowing about Christ, not just an intellectual knowledge like keeping stats on somebody. Okay? It's not just knowing about Christ. This word encompasses all things about Christ leading to salvation. This is knowledge with belief. Knowing Christ doesn't just surpass everything else and then level off, staying at a consistent distance from the other things. To know Christ and to know and to grow in that knowledge means he becomes more and more valuable. We watched uh, one of our favorite movies again not too long ago called Secretariat. Uh, in, in 1973, the racehorse known as Secretariat won the Triple Crown in, in dramatic fashion. Uh, nobody thought that uh, he could handle the distance of that race uh, at the Belmont Stakes, which was a mile and a half. 
And the movie is a very good movie if you get a chance to watch it. I, I recommend it. Very stirring. Not only did Secretariat surpass the other horses, but amazingly, he accelerated the entire race. Okay? He never slowed down. He never leveled off. Each quarter-mile time was faster than the previous time, and he was still accelerating when he crossed the finish line, beating the second-place second horse by 31 lengths. And the crowd was amazed. I mean, they're left with their, their mouths gaping open at, at this at this feat of this awesome event. And knowing Christ was like that to Paul. This is what he was describing. Nothing, nothing else comes close. Knowledge of him surpasses them, and it keeps on going. It keeps on accelerating, and the gap between knowing Christ and everything else gets bigger and bigger and never stops increasing as God in his grace shows you more and more of the wonders of Jesus Christ. And our mouths should be left gaping in amazement when we think of our terrible sin, yet we get to know Christ. What are some things we know about Christ? He said some things about himself that we should remember. In the Gospel of John alone, he tells us eight different things that give us knowledge about him. He describes himself for us by saying, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He is the eternally existent one. I am the true vine. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the sheep gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Church, this is just a drop in a bucket to all the ways in which Jesus is described in the Scriptures. If you read the Scriptures... It's, it's amazing all the different ways that he is described, and I encourage you to, to study that and make that a study of knowing who Jesus is and how he is described in the Scriptures by himself and by others. And what hinders people from knowing Christ for salvation is spiritual death as a result of sin. The unregenerate person values everything but Christ. And like those other kings that we mentioned, what they value is powerless to save them. The Apostle John wrote what Jesus said to the Father about what it means to know him, and Jesus sums it up perfectly. In John 17, 3, Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Simple. To know Christ is eternal life. Now in verse 10, we see a different uh, but related word that Paul uses regarding what it is to know Christ. He says, that I may know him. And the Greek word here is gnosko. The other word was the noun that comes from this word, which is the verb. What Paul is describing here is his desire for more knowledge. He knows Christ unto salvation. But now he's explaining the fact that his life in Christ, is an ongoing pursuit of knowing him more. Then he mentions a desire to know more about Christ in terms of the power of his resurrection. He says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. First, that there was a resurrection. He's not wondering if there was a resurrection. This is a statement of fact about our Lord. Our Lord died as any man dies. 
He stopped breathing. His heart stopped beating. You could have checked his pulse and other vital signs, and he was gone. No life in that body of flesh. But unlike every other man that ever lived, he came back to life. You say, well, what about Lazarus and that other guy whose name nobody knows, Eutychus? Let's look at those guys for a moment. Lazarus died and was buried in a tomb for four days. John describes how Jesus explained to Mary that he told her she was going to see the glory of God, and then he shows her. John eleven forty three and 44, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to, him, said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The other lesser-known guy, Eutychus, died because Paul preached too long. The guy fell asleep and fell out of a third-floor window after Paul preached past midnight. I like how the King James Version version renders this passage in Acts 20, verses 9 and 10. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep, and as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. Okay? There are at least three very important differences between these two guys and our Lord regarding their resurrections. Neither of these guys were God. Jesus is. Neither of these guys had the power to raise themselves from the dead. Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And finally, both of those guys died again and stayed dead. They may have been brought back to life, but they still got old and died again. They had no power over death. Jesus, on the other hand, took up his own life again, and he is alive. Death cannot hold Jesus Christ. So again, there was, there was a resurrection, and Paul knew this about Christ. He also describes that resurrection as powerful. The word Paul uses there for power, uh, dunamis. When we think of the word power, we usually think of strength, which is com- isn't completely wrong in this sense. But really what Paul is talking about is the ability of the resurrection. It has a powerful ability. For example, it is that power that saves us, Peter said. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is that power that justifies us before God because of Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We Christians must believe in the resurrection and its power. If there were no resurrection, you would not be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and deny the resurrection. There were plenty in Paul's day who denied the resurrection, and he had words for them. 
Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and look at verses 12 through 17. I'll give you a second to get there. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 17. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Still in your sins. Paul believed in the power of Christ's resurrection, and he wanted us to experience more of it in life because it's part of knowing Christ and is that same power that we have as Christians to be victorious over temptation and trials, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to proclaim it to those whose sins are not yet forgiven. He continues in verse 10 to explain that part of knowing Christ is that He may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Some of your Bibles might say, the fellowship of his sufferings. The Greek word is koinonia, which I'm sure you've heard, and, and it does mean fellowship. The idea Paul is getting at is that to know Christ is to fellowship with him in his suffering, to partner with him, to share in his sufferings, or to have suffering in common with him. Christian suffering is is deep communion with Christ. Why? Well, the point is that Christ has suffered more than anyone else who has ever lived. And he didn't just suffer on the cross. Remember, he lived life on earth, including all the pain and the sadness and temptation and hatred of others. Jesus went through everything you and I go through, but the difference is he never sinned in any way. And he never deserved anything he had to suffer. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 Jesus suffered on our behalf and for the glory of God. So to know Christ is to know his sufferings. His suffering put him in a unique position to minister to us in our suffering. As we suffer the pains of this life and as we suffer for his name's sake, Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's you, and that's me. Because he himself has suffered. These are not just words on a page. This is the Word of God informing you about knowing Christ. As you think on this today, does it help you? Does it help you to know that Jesus not only suffered, but 
calls us to suffer with him? Regarding sharing in his suffering, Paul includes becoming like him in his death. What does that mean? It, this can be confusing. Uh, we, we've, we've not been crucified on a cross. As he explained in Romans 4, we Christians were, were past tense, buried with him by baptism into his death. Okay, not water baptism, but the meaning is that spiritually we have been immersed into the person of Christ. We have been and now identify with Christ. Water baptism pictures this spiritual reality. This is how we became like him in his death and share in his sufferings. We identified with his life, his death, and his resurrection. I've reminded you before, I must do it again now, that that earlier in this letter, Paul uh, told the people that it was a gift of God, not only that they would believe in Christ, but that they would suffer for his name. That is why when God gave Paul a thorn in his flesh and would not take it away, even though Paul prayed three times for it to be taken away, Paul finally concluded something. And it was this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's 2 Corinthians 12.10. Is that you today? Are you content with the weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities in your life? I know you have them. Do you consider that true strength is found when you are completely weak and can only rely on God? That is what it means to know Christ. Paul said, what he did in verse 10 and really in the whole first part of chapter 3 because he was getting to the goal found in verse 11. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now some translations have if by any means possible. Maybe yours says that. This sounds like and some people believe this is Paul expressing some lack of assurance of his salvation that he's left just hoping he's saved. Okay? It's not the case. Okay? He, it can't be the case because that would contradict Paul's writings in so many portions of Scripture and probably in every letter he wrote. Okay, using the words that or if in that section is not Paul expressing doubt here, but expressing both humility and expectation. In other words, he's saying, This thing will happen because it is promised by God, but I am so undeserving of this gracious gift and want to acknowledge it without being arrogant and presumptuous. Paul calls himself the least. He he remembered back to his persecutions of the church. That's what he knew about himself, but this is not him expressing doubt. He's being humble. Also saying, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is not Paul saying there might be other ways to please God and enter his kingdom. Okay? In light of his points about Christians partaking in the sufferings of Christ, this is like saying, whatever I must endure, whatever I must suffer, whatever God sees fit to use in my life to sanctify me, 
However God chooses to use me as his servant until I attain the resurrection from the dead, so be it. That's, that's what Paul is getting at. And part of knowing Christ is to believe in and look forward to his return for the church. Paul knew this was coming and was willing to go through everything God saw fit to put him through to get ready for that day. Not to earn that day, but before he arrived at that day. And the phrase Paul uses here literally means the out-resurrection from among the corpses. And look with me at, back at 1 Corinthians 15. We've already been there. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 55. First Corinthians 15, 51 through 55. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on Immortality. We shall be changed. Continuing on. Verse 53. For this perishable body must, be put, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Christian, doesn't this bring you peace? Doesn't it bring you joy? Knowing Christ means that we know he keeps his promises and he has promised in his word to come for his children. He will change us, not to be him, but to be like him glorified and suited to spend eternity with him. Knowing Christ is worth more than money, more than possessions, more than physical health, more than comfort or ease, more than status, you name it. Whatever you can think of, whatever anyone could come up with as being the, of the highest value, knowing Christ Jesus is not just slightly more valuable. Knowing him doesn't edge out the other things only. It surpasses them and keeps on going. Brothers and sisters, like Paul, make it your life's pursuit to know Christ. To know the only true King of Kings. Him who lived and died and rose and lives is coming one day to take us home to be with him forever. If you don't know Christ today and, you, and your sins haven't been forgiven, please come and talk with me after the service. Don't let another day go by valuing worthless things like your own self-righteousness to be saved. You must come to the knowledge that surpasses all other things. That is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father except through him. This is eternal life, to know 
Christ. Stand with me and pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you, Father, that you've given us your word that we may know Christ. Lord, I pray that you continually teach us through your word the value, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Lord, may we take stock of all that we value and and hold dear and be willing to get rid of those things that are of no value. I pray, Father, that it would be our life's pursuit to know more and more about Christ. Lord, we have knowledge of Christ unto salvation. And then, Lord, you continually give us more knowledge for sanctification, to be able to endure this life, to be able to endure the sufferings that we share with Christ. And, Lord, one of the major ways that we do this is the fact that we know Christ. There's nobody else that that we know that we can actually truly rely on for everything. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy, for our salvation that's found in Christ alone. And if there's anyone here today who does not know Christ unto salvation, Lord, convict their hearts. Make them restless, Lord. Make them desire to know Christ. Lord, open their eyes, open their hearts to receive salvation through faith in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.